<laughs> Caught me by surprise this time. Welcome everyone. We are on episode 36, we think, of the Strength and Success Podcast. Clearly, we obviously didn't prepare for this one, but we are, but we're not. But uh, it episode, is episode 36. 36. It's episode 36. You said I think, so I'm just going with it. And then I said yes. <laughs> My feisty co-host over here is Riley Prisno. Hi. I am Trevor Jaffe. Um, you're either listening to us on Monday or whenever during the week on the podcast release when it gets downloaded to every podcast site, or you're watching us live on IG. If you are on the IG live, you guys are welcome to drop questions below. We have some that have been sent to us in our story. This week's episode, tagging yourself, that's douchey, but all right, cool. This week's episode, whatever, I was just spitting it out there, it's true. This week's episode is titled, The Limit Does Exist. Um, very fun little hashtag that people like to jump on and say the limit does not exist. And that is true. We do not know absolute human potential. It gets changed and broadened and reached further every day. But in most people who hashtag it, there are also people who negatively self-talk and say, I'll never be able to do this or I can't do this because of. And so what have they done? They've self-imposed a limit. Um, for example, that I recently just found out that Elon Musk is self-taught in, in like uh, rocket science, neurophysics and all this shit. Like he didn't go to school for that. Like cl clearly he didn't believe that the limit existed there as far as what he can learn and understand. I was like blown away by that because clearly he's one of the smartest people alive. But that's, that's an example of self-imposed limitations. Uh, some people are like, well, I'll never learn this because I can't afford to go to school. Um, MIT has their entire curriculum online for free. You just don't get the paper that says you are this degree, but you can learn anything you want, literally, which means you can achieve anything you want, literally, because education is how you start that. You create the plan and things like that. So I'm very big on trying to speak yourself up, not speak yourself down. And we are all guilty of this. We've all at some point said, I can't. And that is when you impose the limit. And one of my clients recently posted a video of her failing a squat and then a video of her making a squat separate apart and talking about her biggest fear before was failing that squat. And she dumped it into the support wraps. No spotter, no anything. She's just training. And it reminded me of Batman. I joked about it. You know, Michael Caine as, as uh, Alfred. And he's asking young Bruce Wayne, you know, why do we fall? And we fall so we can learn to get back up. And, you know, I, we were literally talking about this while we were training. The only true failure is quitting. It's not missing a rep, it's not bombing out of a meet, it's not not getting the promotion or missing a meal. That's not failure. That is learning. And the limit only exists if you self-impose it and create these habits for yourself that you can't do something. Can't is probably the most powerful word in the English language because we can talk ourselves out of so many different things simply by using it. And the word can in relation is that much more powerful. That was why I, I mean, this is kind of why I made the post that I made yesterday where I said it's not about whether you can or you can't, it's whether you'll allow yourself to. And um, constantly telling yourself that you can't do something is like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, a lot of the times we've talked, Trevor and I have talked about this before about like pain and sickness, right? Like when you come down with a cold or some sort of ailment or something, the more that you say, I don't feel good, uh, I'm sick, the sicker it seems like you get. Like every time I have a cold and I like lean into like uh, feeling sick, I feel sicker, you know, rather than if I were to like get up and get moving and whatever. So like your mind is very powerful and does whatever you tell it that it will. Um, so I deal with some clients who say that they're very positive and they're like, well, I was really confident and I like, I approached the bar like I could do it today. And I'm like, yeah, but did you still approach the bar like you couldn't? You know, like you walk right. up and say like, well, I hope I can get this. Saying I hope I can get this isn't positive. 
saying I hope I can get this is uh, leaving room for the loophole of, well, I didn't say that I could get it. I just said, I hope I got it. So being positive um, with yourself is super impactful. Like there are so many studies that are done about how you talk to yourself is what your brain is being taught. Like you teach your brain to think certain things by how you talk to yourself. Um, I'm very guilty of this, you know, like I know Trevor's guilty of this and all the clients that I work with are guilty of this to where, you know, you wake up someday and you're like, man, I suck. <laughs> you know, like you would just have, a, I just had one of these days like yesterday, I think, um, where I was like, everything that I did that day just felt really difficult and I wasn't feeling good about myself and whatever. And I had not a great day because I spent the whole day talking myself into not feeling good. So I had a bad day. Um, so the way that you talk to yourself is really, really important. And also with this, the limit does exist. Um, in a slightly different direction too, I want to take this, like the limit does exist on your strength if you're not doing the things that you should be doing. Like you can get away with not sleeping great um, for a couple weeks or even a couple months. Sometimes people get away with like not eating well for a whole year before it catches up to them and they no longer have any good progress. Like you get stagnant at some point. So if you're not doing like in regards to training, if you're not doing all the things that you need to be doing as far as like sleep, nutrition, hydration, um, you can get away with it for a little bit, but then eventually it's going to catch up to you and it's going to restrict your progress because the limit does exist on how hard you can uh, impede upon your progress. Right, yeah, that's a good point. Just because you're getting away with something doesn't mean you're thriving from something. And that's what people misunderstand. It's like, oh, I didn't sleep, so I'll just take more caffeine. Yeah. You know, I'm all for that. But nonetheless, it's like, <laughs> it's, like it's only going to work for so long. It's only going to work until it doesn't work anymore. And then what? Eventually, you have to allow yourself to make those changes. You have to allow yourself to progress and you have to believe in yourself enough to be worth that effort to do these things because that's where the limits come from. The less you do for yourself, the more limited you are by your growth. Well, it, I think we talked about this before. Is it the betta fish that if you put it in the tank, it grows to the size of the tank? I think you said it was a goldfish. Maybe it was a betta fish. I, I don't, don't remember. I think, I think sharks are that way yeah, too. Yeah, self-imposed. Like, yeah, sharks. So much. I had like three people mess with like different fish that have the same thing. So it's a very common trait among fish. But it's it's a, you know, to me, it's even more common trait among humans. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we see ourselves as only this capable and then we settle for that life. You don't have to freaking settle for that life. There's so many people who have achieved great things even later in life because they finally started believing themselves. And we talked about this in Miami at the seminar, like, um, KFC, the guy who started the actual Colonel Sanders, um, was 65 and at one point was suicidal in his life. You know, he thought he was down on his luck and, and KFC is one of the largest course franchise chains where it's not healthy, but nonetheless, it's, it's a, it's a billion dollar business at this point. Whereas he didn't start until he was 65. You don't know what you're capable of throughout the entirety of your life. If you keep condemning yourself to a life of mediocrity or telling yourself you're not worthy, you're not capable. You have to believe you are absolutely capable of everything you want to achieve or you won't even work for it. Yeah, and like you mentioned settling, a lot of people settle for things that they think they deserve. Like, um, I've spoken to so many people that had like rough childhoods or like were set up really poorly for um, being adult, whether that was like financially or education wise or whatever, like they were set up really poorly and they didn't have a great situation. And that frustrates me because I was not set up for very, very much success at all, mm -hmm. uh, financial wise. Um, education wise, anything. I wasn't set up the greatest for success, but I'm not the type to settle in general. Like if I want something, I will work for it. And um, so I made my own path that way. So I get frustrated when people are just like, well, I'm just doomed 
to live in this hometown and follow the same footsteps as my mom or dad or grandma, grandpa, whatever. Um, like they're like, I'm just, I'm destined to do that. And you're destined to do whatever you want to do. You are just choosing to not work hard and carve your own path. So if you're settling, that's on you. It's not because anyone else made it so that way you have to settle. There's always a way. Right. There's always a way to find a new path or do something different than what you're uh, quote unquote destined to do. Yep. And somebody recommended a book, when to, What to Say When You Talk to Yourself or When to Talk to Yourself by someone who helps her out of Shad Helmister. I don't know that book. But uh, it sounds like a great book because it is really important how you speak to yourself. And Brandon, yeah, you do need to allow yourself to sleep and eat more and recover more. Uh, that's scheduling, man. So you're in charge of your schedule. You're in charge of when you do those things. You need to be prepared. You know your schedule ahead of time. It's never a surprise. We talk about that all the time. It's like, it's not a surprise. You haven't just been dropped a plate of something that you have to do. You know what your schedule is ahead of time. You prepare for it. And if there's an instance where maybe you're on call and things get interrupted, then you plan for that. You have a meal in the fridge or you have a shake in the fridge or drinks that you go. And if you're on call and you get called out, you bring them with you. You know, I have clients who are, who are firefighters and I tell them the same thing. Like they can be called up in the middle of the night and sleep gets interrupted. I'm like, have things prepared. So when you're going out, you're grabbing that too. So you're staying hydrated, do whatever while you're awake and you're working. There really is no excuse. It's just a lack of effort. And you have to be adaptable because sometimes things do happen that you don't account for. And if you're not adaptable and you can't say, okay, well, this is what I have to do. So this is how I'm going to make my general schedule fit. Um, then like, that's kind of on you. You know, like there have been things that we're like, oh shit, this happens. Now we have to do this, but we adapt. Right. Like, if you know it's a possibility, like, plan for the possibility. Yeah. That's why yeah. I like, I love the Bruce Lee quote, like be like water. That's yep. exactly what you, you have to do as an adult who has responsibilities and a life outside of the gym. You have to be able to adapt and like adjust to any situation, even if it's just thrust upon you and you didn't know that it was going to happen. Do I have to act adultish? Well, no. Oh, cool. Yesterday you wore that shirt. Adult-ish. Ish. <laughs> yeah. I enjoy life. It's like, yeah, it's like everything, 80-20. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, let's get to some questions. Okay. Um, your best solution to add up your tightness? Strengthen your glutes. You know, if, if a muscle is tight, it's probably either weak or doing too much of the work in a movement. So if you're constantly tight in the adductors, it's not likely if they're, I'm assuming they're tight that you want to get in positions for like squat or, or sumo deadlift. It's not likely that they are tight in that movement. It's like if you're statically stretching them and they feel tight, they're probably not weak. It's probably the contra, the contra, the uh, opposite muscle, the antagonistic muscles of that that's probably weak. So if you're having trouble getting into position for squat or deadlift, chances are your glutes suck or you're going into lumbar extension and you're not able to use your glutes very efficiently. They're still working, just not as efficiently as they could be. And chances are that's why you're always feeling your adductor stiff, stiff, sore, tight because you're not using the other hip extension muscles. You're relying on the adductors to extend your hips. Mm -hmm. um, you see that most often people are like, well, my adductors are tight. And then you ask them to get in the position and they passively can with no problem. If you can't actively get in the position, then they're weak. If you can passively get in the position, then they're not weak. They're just the antagonist is weak and does not allow you to get there. So you have to understand the relationship between passive or, or active contractions and so forth. So if they're tight and you're struggling to get, you know, anything else to contribute, then chances are you're just using them too much and not able to use your other hip extensors. So you probably have a poor position and I would work on fixing that position for whether it's sumo or squat. And then oftentimes we joke about this all the time, bracing fixes nine tenths of your issues. So if you are going into that anterior tilt excessively while you're squatting or deadlifting, then you're obviously not braced. There's a difference between hinging and tilting. Learn it. Yeah, we see that a lot with the squat where people's knees cave in and they immediately think that like their adductors are weak and that's why they're caving. Um, generally, they are your knees are pulling in because the adductors are taking over the movement. So that would be uh, generally more glute work in that, but also 
usually the knee cave comes from a bracing issue. It's not right. that your adductors are weak and that's why they're pulling in. Your adductor, your knees are pulling in because your adductors are stronger than doing your brace. the whole movement yep. for you. Yep, you're not braced. They're stronger than the brace, so your body's finding stability somewhere. Um, next question. What are the best exercises for shoulder stability for the bench press other than bench press? I really like this question. Uh, Benoit asked it. I love this question um, because so many people will do things like bottoms up kettlebell presses or like a, a lot of banded internal external rotations and stuff like that because they're working on the shoulder rotator cuff and stuff like that. And yes, that is your shoulder stability and your shoulder health, but it is not bench stability. You have to train the stability within the same pattern. So when I answered this question in my story briefly, I, I mentioned that, that it has to be in the same or similar pattern. So you want to be looking at things that force you within that same pattern and then having to control something. So like chaos bench pressing where you have hanging kettlebells or dumbbells or plates that are wobbling the bar so you have to fight that wobble on the way down. Uh, eccentric tempos are another great way so you're learning how to control the absorption of force. Uh, I really love chaos pause photos where you're not actually touching a chest because when you touch the chest, it's a lot easier to come back up. But if you're having to hold that chaos still the entire time, you're really working that bench stability. But the, what's really lost, and I mentioned pause dumbbell presses as well. A lot of people don't pause their dumbbell presses or even take them all the way down. That's the whole freaking point of using a dumbbell is extended range of motion. Train the bottom. So if your dumbbell presses are like coming to here and back up, you're only cheating yourself and your ego. Uh, full range of motion dumbbell presses and pause them so you're getting stability in the bottom when you're in a stretch position. But bench stability is upper back strength. Mm -hmm. If you can't hold that depression and that retraction, that's why you have no stability within the bench press outside of a shoulder injury. I have many, so my stability is compromised because I've had many shoulder injuries from years of weightlifting and strongman and the whole nine. You want to strengthen your back. And what I mentioned in the story is if you can't pause your seal rows, you're not working the muscles responsible for that stability. You're just working your lats but rowing it up and down. So if you're doing a horizontal row pattern or like coming straight towards your chest, the opposite of a bench press, you want to pause that because that's what you're holding contracted the entire time while you lower the bar and press the bar. And you want to condition the position. Mm -hmm. So when I do rows to build my deadlift, I don't pause shit, I don't worry about it, I just worry about squeezing and, and getting some retraction of the shoulder blades up and down because I'm building a row pattern. So I want a strong upper back. But if I want a tight, stable upper back, I'm pausing all those rows, pulling towards the chest and pausing as much as I can because that's how you build the position for bench stability. That's one of the reasons why we put up that inverted row isometric hold before you bench press for 10 seconds with a feet elevated inverted row because that's what you're holding. You have everything in your lower body contracted, everything in your upper body contracted, and you're holding it still. That's how you build bench stability, by learning how to hold the position while there's dynamic motion going on. I love priming the bench with not not just necessarily the inverted isometric holds, but just like priming your bench movement with inverted rows and making sure that you're pausing and holding at the top for, it only has to be like three to four reps. I think I had those in there for Sydney right now to where she has a little bit of shoulder stability issue and she does an inverted, she has two sets of four, I think, inverted rows with a pause at the top before her bench work. Um, and that seems to be really helping her bench. I love the... Um, dumbbell work i think like single arm dumbbell work or even like 1.5 dumbbell work for stability is really mm -hmm. helpful too um but chaos presses are just so fun and it like it definitely forces you to uh squeeze that bar tight and be and able to stay well they're Those challenging they're humbling and they are just really really fun yeah and they'll they'll be a blow to your ego too because you lose like 200 pounds on your bench press all Easy. of a sudden while you're doing this movement you're like but i can really feel how this helps yep. uh, and it matches the position mm -hmm. so it's great uh, Isaiah asks, can you talk about how you structure training for someone who has time restrictions with training restrictions, meaning no more than one and a half hours in the gym? Cool. Uh, I train five days a week and it never exceeds more than one and a half hours. So I don't understand what your time restriction is. Get the fuck off Instagram.
Seriously, not on me right now. <laughs> but what I mean is you're wasting your time if it takes you longer than an hour and a half to get all your training sessions. And that includes my deadlift sessions, my squat sessions. And some of those sessions, I'm working up to like 700 plus pounds for deadlifts. You got to get rid of the fluff or you got to get rid of what's wasting your time. Identify how much you need to do to warm up. If you have mobility restrictions, do them the morning of, not when you go to train, do your workout so they're already done and loose. Uh, get rid of fluff time. Get get as warmed up as fast as you possibly can. Circuit those things. Get into the bar faster. Stop checking your phone. Um, it's one of my pet peeves when people are like on social media posting their sets or stories while they're lifting. Mm-hmm. You cannot be focused on lifting if you're worried about that reaction or how many people have liked your Instagram story or your post while you're on there. That's bullshit. That just means you're attention seeking, not training. So there's obviously something somewhere that's eating up your time while you're training that you have to get rid of. And for a lot of people, it's just same thing as the food and the schedule. It's a lack of planning and preparing. You know what time you have to get to the gym. You know how much time you have. Be diligent and intentful when you're there. An hour and a half is not time restricted. I have clients who have 45 minutes that are time restricted. And what I usually do for them is I spread it out. It's the like she mentioned earlier, 80-20 rule. So we, we focus on the biggest priorities, which are going to be prime movers, uh, one lift builder, and you know maybe a, a, an antagonistic superset of, of other muscle groups, and then they're out. Mm-hmm. You know, they are really focused on intent because they have 45 minutes. Maybe I can get them to train more frequently. They might be doing like five or six days a week with those short bouts uh, and adding in other things like I have them do like daily homework or maybe they're at home and they have band stuff where they're doing like their shoulder stuff, you know, mobilities, pull-aparts, face pulls, curls, push-downs with the band while they're at home since they don't have time to do it at the gym. But for the most part, if it's taking you longer than an hour and a half to train, you're just wasting time somewhere. Yeah. And that's a hard reality for a lot of people to face is they don't realize how much time they waste while they're training. Yeah. If I have a client who's, um, like, let's say, you know, 45 minutes, four days a week, what I will generally do is, uh, SBD days and like, like maybe like two SBD days and two quote unquote accessory days, um, to where like two of those days, they're literally just squat, squatting, benching and deadlifting to get the skill practice in because that can take up to 45 minutes. And then the other two days will be more their accessory movements, their muscle building movements or like what their weaknesses are from the squat bench and deadlift. Um, but an hour and a half is plenty of fucking plenty time. Plenty of fucking time. Um, yeah. I understand taking a little bit longer, like, you know, three, or three, four minutes or something if you're working up to, like, a heavy single or doubles. Like, I understand taking that in between your squat bench and your deadlift. But you really don't need five minutes between sets of accessory movements. And if you do, you're very deconditioned. Like, um, your accessory movements really should be, like, EMOM style. Like, you, a set of ten maybe rest 60 seconds, another set of 10. Like there's really no reason for it to take five minutes in between like accessory movements. Or antagonistic pairing. So once I get rid of the main and secondary lift, I might antagonistically pair my accessories into like supersets. So if I have- Biceps and triceps. Biceps and triceps. Or if I have like shoulder work and back work, I just toggle back and forth to get them done. Because while one muscle group's resting, I'm working the other one that saves a lot of time for different things and so forth. It gets the bodybuilding bro pump stuff in so I get out of the way, which I don't really like that anyways. But being honest, you you can get away with being hyper-specific and just focusing on the main list for the most part and then maybe picking one accessory and just getting a pump out of that accessory. You don't need a tremendous amount of variety of those accessories. Um, unless you have an issue. But like I said, I do all my mobility work first thing in the morning after breakfast. It starts my day. It gets me active. That way I'm not doing it when I'm at the gym so I can get into the bar within five minutes. Yeah. And we even proved this once because somebody said there's no way you can get into the bar in less than 10 minutes. We drove to Tampa, which is like three hours, a little bit more than three hours away, and I was under the bar in seven minutes. <laughs> yeah. And the gym was like, what the hell? And I was like, because I've already done everything else. Like I just do what I need to do and then that's it. I don't waste time. Yeah. So shout out to Scott who was like, asshole. <laughs> Scott, Scott also like spend seven minutes hanging upside down. Yeah, a lot of abandoned distractions and stretches and activations and whatnot. 
Uh, tried the recent post you made about the shrugs, sitting on the bench, good shit. Oh, I'm glad you like that, thank you. Good advice, good. So that, he took that well. I appreciate you taking that well, Isaiah, because sometimes people need to be called on that. Like, we waste a lot of time and we don't realize we're wasting time. He's agreeing after my main movements, I tend to superset accessories to get the hell out. That's that's pretty much what we yeah. do, yeah. Uh, more like antagonistic sets as opposed to supersets because uh, I don't want to be out of breath while I'm training. And I don't want to ruin force output, so I might take like 35 to 45 seconds between them, but I'll alternate them to get them done faster. Uh, so this is actually about rest times he's asking. Isaiah asked about the rest time. So on your same topic, what are your typical rest times between sets for main lifts? Uh, scientifically speaking, we tend to have the best power output between three to five minutes. There's even some research showing 10. Um, I think if you're training for absolute maximal strength, 10 minutes is ideal because that's more like a meet. I wouldn't suggest doing that every training session because if you're doing it at a five, it's not absolute maximal strength, but if you're taking an all out max single, you might want that amount of time in between. Seven's probably a little bit more realistic, but Strength-wise, three to five minutes is best for your absolute strength and power output and, and regeneration and recovery and so forth. We don't want to get so far out of shape that we need to take 10 minutes between every set. I did have a training partner once who drove me nuts when we trained strongman. Uh, Robert would take like 10 to 12 minutes. We'd always be yelling, I'm like, come on, dude. And it, it got very frustrating for the rest of us. Um, but you want to look at that as once you're done with your strength work, which is your main and secondary lift, the rest of it is accessory work. There, we always break this down into lift builders and muscle builders. Mm -hmm. And once you're done with the lift builders, you can take shorter and shorter and shorter rest periods to breeze through those. But as far as the lift builders, take three to five minutes of your working sets, not your warm-up sets, your working sets, to give yourself adequate recovery so you can have as much force generation and power output as possible. I feel like generally when we train in the garage or even at the gym, it's usually like, I'd say five to seven minutes. And then, so on weekday, the 10 minute break feels great. <laughs> yeah. because you get a little bit extra time um, but I feel like five to seven is generally what we keep it at in the garage I usually recommend five because I know people are going to be longer than that like if yeah. someone asks me that and I say five they're probably going to take six or seven I just time it by the song like if I finish a set I just wait for that song to finish and I get ready for it whenever the next song comes on I'm like okay let's go so usually that's like three or four minutes um, also it depends on the temperature when it's really really hot outside in Florida it might be more like the six seven minutes Yeah. and then when it's breathe. cold I might move a little faster just to try and stay warm so sometimes temperature dependent when you're training outdoors it's hard to breathe it's <laughs> humidity um, one hip has less rotation and sometimes gets annoyed after sumo additional drills or stretches question mark Okay, so one hip has less rotation. Chances are it's not the hip. Chances are it's coming from somewhere else and I'm gonna go way outside the chain here and go either ankle or shoulder. If the hip is rotating less, it's because it lacks movement somewhere else. And I would look at the cross opposite side shoulder and I would look at the same side ankle and test those first. So I would test the ankle mobility in that side because if the hip is rotating differently than the other ones, something is making it so it has to fight stability and it won't allow it to move as well as the other one, barring a, an injury. So if you've injured your hip, at some point, then that's just going to be natural. That's a compensation pattern that happens. If you haven't injured a hip and you're noticing this trend, look at the ankle or look at the shoulder and see which one is not moving as fluidly as the other side that's causing it to lock down and not freely rotate the same way the other one does. Yeah, we actually, I actually just saw this with one of my clients, Kelly. Um, her back squat, when she sent me like a dead on video, one of her hips is not rotating out as much as the other. And so, um, you know, I gave her some prescriptions and things to work on for like rehab and prehab and whatnot. And then she sent me a front squat video, um, 
of the same thing and I noticed that her opposite shoulder, the opposite shoulder of the hip that's not externally rotating is internally rotating. Mm -hmm. So that's that cross body connection that Trevor's talking about. So with her, now her focus is working on that external rotation of that opposite shoulder to that opposite hip. So that way it's not, they're not pulling in towards each other. They can actually freely move out. Um, but that would, yeah, I 100% agree with that. Yeah, if you haven't had a direct injury to the hip, chances are it's ankle or shoulder that's causing it to lock down, so it's creating artificial stability because the other one doesn't want to freely move. Yeah. Uh, what's the longest time you have had a client? Uh, I have a few that are, are five years or over. Uh, I have several that are four years. I have even more that are three years. So I tend to like to work with people who want to work for a long time and aren't looking to coach hop and program and jump around at the latest fad because I think of athletes in a long-term development. And I look at this as how long can I keep them healthy so they can get to be their strongest over time and ingrain good habits and good patterns. This sport, everyone's gonna have strains and pulls. It's inevitable. If you're truly testing yourself, you're gonna have strains and pulls. We don't wanna have muscle tears and we don't wanna have catastrophic injuries. Uh, knock on wood, that they don't happen to you. But that's always our goal was to develop long-term because somebody who stays healthy for three years is gonna be significantly stronger than someone who's only healthy for one year. Mm -hmm. That's three times as long that you can maintain consistent training. So I like to look at athletes as long-term. I have several people reach out to me like, hey, I have a meet in 12 weeks and I'd like you to prep me for it. And my answer is no. I don't want to work with you for 12 weeks. There's nothing I can do for you in 12 weeks except learn you and then prep and peak you and that doesn't build or develop everything. Um, th this is my pet peeve at Riley's too. When am I in meat prep? <laughs> I got news for you. You are not in meat prep just because you were 12 weeks out. Mm -hmm. 12 weeks out is when you're refining everything you built when you were 16 weeks, 20 weeks, 24 weeks, 32 weeks out, 50 weeks out. You're always in freaking meat prep. Yeah. If you aren't doing something to build towards the meat, what are you even doing? Or like, why are you just now taking it seriously now that you're in quote unquote meat prep? Right. Like that's what people are like, oh, I'm going to turn it on I'm, now. Exactly. I'm in meat prep, so time to have good habits. No, asshole. The whole time you're supposed <laughs> to have good habits. You're trying to do something incredible. You're trying to achieve something astronomical. You should always have these habits. Now, no one's perfect, and I don't eat like a saint all the time. I just have like a chocolate pie. But it's one of those things where it's like it's post workout. 90% of the time, I'm doing everything I possibly can to be the best I possibly can. You're always in freaking meat prep. There's a reason my hashtag says stay ready because I can tell you as a coach, someone's going to be like, hey coach, I know it's short notice but there's a meet in seven weeks. Do you think I can be ready? Yes. Yeah. We can drop into a peak because you've been doing what you're supposed to do the entire fucking time, not just 12 weeks out when you're in meat prep. Yeah, that's not the time to start taking it seriously. You either take it seriously all the yeah. time or just shut the fuck up. You, we don't have seasons. You're always a power lifter. You're yeah. always training for strength. Always. So act like an athlete, treat yourself like an athlete, allow yourself to be an athlete and consider the fact that no matter how far out you are from your meat, you're in meat prep. Yep. You don't even have to have a meat. Guess what? You're, you're in meat prep. <laughs> yep. Drives me crazy. Uh, to answer the question, I think I've been coaching for three years and I actually think I have a client who's, uh, I think she was one of my first five. So I think Carissa has been with me for the, like, the almost the whole three years. Like probably a couple months shy because I think she was, you know, my first, one of my fifth or something. But I think I have three. I think three years is the longest and that's how long I've been yeah. charging for coaching. So. By the way, FYI to all my clients who say, when are we meet prep? That lets me know that you haven't been taking things very seriously in your life until you ask that question. Yep. I know that you're in trouble. Yeah. All right. Um, how do you keep a tight back on bench? Tips, tricks, or cues? Ah, so this throws back to our original question about shoulder stability is you build a stronger upper back and position. 
So beyond the setup for the bench, which I'll talk about in a second, you want to have a back that is strong enough and conditioned enough to hold that retraction, depression, and tension for like a solid three to five seconds for every rep. Now, obviously the more reps you do yet, the longer you have to hold it. But one of the reasons why people cramp up their lats when they're benching and things is they haven't conditioned to the position. In gym, you might be able to take that max single in two seconds. In a meet, it's gonna be more like five to seven seconds because you have to get your lift off. Your lift off person has to get out of the way. The head judge has to give you a start command, a press command, a rack command. You're holding that shit three times as long in, in meet than you are. You might as well prepare for that. So shout out to all of you who unrack the bar and then wait and hold it for a second because that's conditioning to the position instead of just dropping and driving. Yes, it's easier to drop and drive. Can you do that to me? No. Unless you can beat APF and they have that rolling start, but then most people don't respect your total anyways. No offense. <laughs> no offense, yeah. But it's true. Um, they look at that like, oh, they've chosen easy meat. That happens. Um, some judges don't. I, I shouldn't knock the federation because that, that's judge dependent. Some judge still makes you wait and hold it. So it's not federation dependent. It's, it's judge dependent or meat director dependent. You know, some have better standards than others as far as judges, not, not federations. But it's one of those things where that's what you have to condition to is being able to hold that. Mm -hmm. um, that's something that heavy holds do help. So heavy holds don't help you lift more weight because you're not taking it through any range of motion. But they build lifting confidence because you're holding the heavy weight. So when you unrack something that's maybe 10% lighter than that, it doesn't, it doesn't feel heavy. But it also helps you condition that position of holding that weight for a long time and waiting and waiting and waiting so you're comfortable there. So that's one thing I would do. The other thing I would do, and I don't care if you come under the bar or push back to the bar, make sure your feet are pushing forwards into your shoes because that's putting pressure back towards the bar and hopefully if you're up high onto your upper traps, you're pushing that pressure towards your upper traps. So you're driving the force back, which is where we want the raw press to go for the most part. If your feet are just lazy and they're not pushing forwards, then there's no pressure back. You don't have any leg drive. That's what leg drive is. Leg drive is using your quads mm -hmm. to extend your knees back, which pushes force backwards. You want to be pushing forward through the floor, not down. When you push down through the floor is when you get that butt pop. When you push forwards into the floor, that's when you get the leg drive. There is a difference between leg drive and hip extension. Leg drive is pushing forward, hip extension is pushing down. That's gonna make your butt pop up. Yep. Um, I like what you, we were talking about this yesterday, I like what you mentioned about um, at the end of someone's session to take like lightweight on a barbell and actually focusing on really hard retracting and really hard protracting. Like basically, uh, I don't know that you would call you wouldn't call it rowing, but literally like laying on a bench like you're bench pressing, putting the barbell out in front of you, retracting as hard as possible, protracting as hard as possible, and like repeating that for like 10 reps or something. We were just talking about it yesterday. I feel like that'd be a good way to learn how to actually squeeze your back into position before rowing, um, before rowing the bar down to you. Also like inverted rows and things like that, like we mentioned earlier. Basically everything that we mentioned earlier is gonna help you um, Feel the squeeze. Yeah, feel, that's a great expression. Feel the squeeze. <laughs> that's what you have to do. So when, squeeze. Yeah, when you hear someone say get tight, that's what they're talking about. Where do you want that tension? Well, where do you lack it? So if you look at your videos and your feet are loose and that's where you lack the tension, you need to tighten the feet by pushing forward. If your wrists are loose and you need to tighten your hands by creating pinky pressure or white knuckle pressure or breaking the bar, some people say. You know, you have to figure out that when you hear get tight, you have to know where you're usually loose first because otherwise get tight is a non-specific cue. So identify where the lifter gets loose and then cue that. That's where you want to get tight. And that's sometimes it's bracing. You know, you do brace on the bench, you want a big belly breath because that big belly breath is going to drive your sternum up and back. That's what, I mean, like, I feel like both you and I yell pinky pressure all the time for bench because it's the law of radiation. The harder right. that you squeeze your pinkies, the tighter your triceps are, the tighter your lats are, it travels down the chain. Same thing like with traveling up the chain with your feet. The more force that you have at your feet, the more it's going to drive up and cause everything else to stay tight and squeeze.
basically. Right. We had a question of, do you ever wear the bow tie for long drives? And the answer to that is no. The bow tie was designed as a recovery method. Uh, temporary, you put it on temporary and do some movement for like 10 minutes and you take it off so you get ischemia, which is localized blood flow. The idea is to get cir circulation going to the areas that you just work to enhance recovery. Uh, not necessarily scientifically proven, but it does feel good. Now, if you're wearing the things like the bow tie for long driving, you're not teaching yourself how to hold good posture, hold good positions. You're relying on an artificial stability, artificial support. And that doesn't help you through the reality of life is that you are the person who's in control of you, not the band. So that's one of the reasons why you have to learn how to do these things on your own and not have something that does the support for you. It's an enabler to have poor posture because when you're driving and it's pulling you back, instead of teaching yourself to have good posture, you're relying on that to do the posture for you. As soon as you take that off, you're just going to go right, you're just right back, to your, right back to your old pattern. So you right. have to build yeah. patterns, build positions, build, build the orientation to your body. They do feel nice though. They feel wonderful. Uh, with the year coming to an end, what are you most proud of accomplishing this year? I didn't die. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> Another year above ground. Ah, oh, shit. Um, I don't particularly love talking about my accomplishments. It's one of the hardest things I have to do in seminars is like introduce myself and what I've accomplished. I am exceptionally proud, don't get me wrong, of the things I accomplished. I don't like talking about them though. Like it makes me a little uncomfortable because I feel like I'm bragging. Um, I can say though, I did hit the majority of my goals. So I guess I could be really proud of that. Like I had a pretty wild year as far as competing and I did hit the overwhelming majority of my goals, save for just one, which, you know, we're still gonna aim for next year. But I'm really proud of that. Um, I'm always proud how the community grows. I'm always proud of how many people share these podcasts that we do because I, I like that the message gets out there to help everyone and make everyone a better lifter and a stronger community together. I love that togetherness. So I, I can be really proud of that. Those are things that I accomplished. That's things that you've accomplished. You guys have helped spread the word and spread the message, which is really cool. Um, super proud of Culture Nutra. Uh, as, as the company grows, again, that's another avenue. We put two to three tips a week on the Culture Nutra Instagram page. So that's just more help, more ways of, of helping people and spreading the word to the community. So I'm super proud of that. I'm just really, really proud of how much the community keeps growing and sharing and helping. And it's, it's really cool when someone will try something that I post and then like tag me and be like, hey, this was awesome. Thank you so much. That makes me feel good because I don't want to feel like I'm wasting my time. Time is really valuable to me. So I really enjoy that. So I love when you guys share these podcasts. I love when you guys share the, um, the tutorials I put up or the tutorials that go on the, the Culture Nutra page. That makes me feel good because that makes me feel like I've accomplished something. My physical goals as far as competing, they're mine personally. So I'm, I am proud of them, but I don't ever want to brag about them because I'm the only person who's going to remember what I did at my last meet. Nobody else will remember. So it's like more individual personalized to me. Mm -hmm. um, I would say personally, my uh, biggest accomplishment that I'm most proud of is probably like paying off all my debt. Um, that's not lifting related, but that was the biggest thing for me that I needed to do was get rid of debt so that way I could be, um, that way I didn't have to worry about it anymore. So that was probably the most proud. Um, I have never been in a good financial situation in my entire life up until this year. So uh, that was a that was a big one for me. Um, second, I would say is probably Culture Nutra because with the way that the year started out, wasn't so good. Um, so being able to actually start something and like see it continue to grow and even if like that growth may seem small I suppose like I know that there are other companies that come out of the gate with like so much profit and whatever because they're like massive influencers or whatever but I'm very proud of the growth that we are sustaining and like continue to have with Culture Nutra um, I look at the numbers every week 
or so is to make sure that we are on the right track. And I, I look at the trends of like what's doing well, what's not doing well, what people like, what people don't like. Um, so being able to see like that little baby grow, especially because this was an idea that we had kind of spitballed and started last year. Um, and then like lots of life things happened and we weren't able to go and pursue those things. So being able to actually start Culture Nutra and like continuing to see it grow, you know, people, seeing people wear shirts and order banners, people tagging us in their stuff, like people making recipes, like a girl just made um, truffles, protein truffles the other day from our protein powder. And like that stuff's just cool to me. Um, I'm really big on support, but I generally don't ever receive as much support back as what I give. Um, so being able to receive the same support that I feel like I give to the community sometimes and seeing it back with like something that we have is really, really cool. Like I always expect, I'm like, oh, everyone's going to hate what we do. Everyone's going to hate <laughs> it. Um, just as like a defense mechanism so that way I'm not disappointed. So the go on with really low expectations. So anything that happens, like, oh, it's a bonus. <laughs> well, that's like kind of been my whole life because I'm usually disappointed. So you should um, be in dodgeball. Oh, I have no goals. If I if I have no goals, I never never disappointing myself. <laughs> yeah. So that's been that's been really cool. Culture neutral, definitely. But like my number one thing was definitely paying off um, all the debt that I had, which is significant. It was yeah. it was a good amount, and uh, it's cool to feel free from that, considering I've spent my whole entire life trying to pay it off. So. That's very, very cool. That's a great question. Thank you. Uh, I think there's... Uh, how do you guys come up with the name for the company? Um, I've had... Talking about the Jaffe Colt for a while. Colt was always strength culture. Uh, I know another company tagline that after I did their uh, their podcast and they ended up putting in theirs, but it's fine. Um, I'm very big on strength culture because it's how I grew up. I grew up in a community where someone took me around the gym and took the time to show me these things and educate me and teach me. I trained strongmen for many years in someone's garage because it was part of a community and it was the only way you could train it back then. You couldn't order equipment. It was like home fabricated stuff. and That's just how I grew up within the strength culture. Everybody helped everybody and people were part of training groups and they, they encouraged each other, they coached each other, they taught each other. And so I've always wanted to pass that on. So it was, it was a gift given to me and it's a gift that I want to give the strength world. So I always give that strength culture. So that's what it was about. And it's culture Nutra, which is short for nutraceuticals, which is actually what supplements are called. Nutraceuticals is nutrient based things that you take in as supplements. So we just had a little play on words there of culture Nutra. And that's why it talks about in the bio, if you actually read the bio of the website, it talks about what our mission statement is as far as growing the strength community. There's a little discount code in there if you happen to do take the time to read it. And it's one of the reasons why we have that hashtag one of us. Because if you're one of us, you're someone who gives back to the community that you take from instead of just taking and never giving back. We, you know, we are not always selfless, but I try not to be selfish as well. So I, I try to give just as much as I take and I try to get just as much as I give, hopefully, which is why it's really cool to see that support. The, I mean, the culture in the community has given us everything that we have, you know, like powerlifting is, is our career, I guess, you know, like I hate to say it like that, but like we, you know, our job is full-time job is coaching. We have a supplement business. We wouldn't have any of these things if it weren't for the community and the culture that comes right. with powerlifting. So, uh, an homage to the community. An homage to the community, culture, nature. Um, do I need to know my current one rep max to do the train heroic team training? So the team, Train Heroic Team Training is something we came out with so people could have great programming. Uh, it's updated weekly. You can try it for free. There's a free week that you can try. Somebody actually just thanked me for having a free week trial up there. Um, you don't necessarily need to know your exact one rep max. You can take a guesstimate. What I tell people sometimes is if they don't know it, to take like a three rep max or a five rep max and use a rep max calculator to get a general range and then just take five or 10 pounds off of that so you can use that as a training max. It's ideal if you know what your somewhat max is, but I, I always tend to train 
below my actual max anyways. Whatever my max is in comp, I usually will train a little bit below that for training methods because I like to lift fast and I like to make sure I'm making all the reps. People always accuse me of sandbagging, but when meat, con meat time shows up, I do very, very well. The idea isn't to be strong on Tuesday, the idea is to be strong on meat day. So I like to train slightly below my threshold. So let's say just easy math, if your absolute max is 100 pounds, there's no reason why you couldn't use 95 pounds as a training max and get the same result. It's gonna be really, really close to your actual max and so forth, and then you just train at that threshold. And then I always tell people with my personal coaching, they have 5% variance up or down. So if it calls for 80%, that means if it's moving really well, you can hit the same reps at the same speed, 85%, do it. If it's not moving well and you're tired of sluggish, bring it down to 75% so you get quality in. So even though it says 80%, it never has to be exact. It doesn't have to be exact to 80%. You'll, I used to see people freaking out trying to find change place in gym to equal like, you know, 181.5 pounds. Like, we gotta get the little microchips. I'm like, are you kidding me, dude? 181 or 182 is not gonna matter. It could even be 180, it could be 185, it could be 175, it could be one, you know, 190. It doesn't matter. The intent and the force you put in the bar is what matters. So no, you don't need to know your exact one rep max, but just have a guesstimate range within like 10 pounds and you're fine. There's a good mix of RPE and percentage-based work, but the main movements are generally... Uh, yeah, I have it set as a, uh, a top set, an RPE, and then volume work at a percentage. So you'll, as long as you're within a range of 5%, 10%, you're fine. Yep. Um, okay. What is good for muscle recovery? Sleep more. Sleeping and eating. <laughs> it's not the sexy answer. Um, there's so many studies, like Chris Beersley just put out a study about how there's no actual proof that sleeping more increases anabolism, but sleeping less does decrease catabolism. So getting less efficient sleep means your body's actually going to break down muscle tissue at a faster rate. So we know that training is a stimulus for recovery and we know that sleeping is the actual way that we do recover, but there's no proof that it's anabolic to sleep more, but there is proof that if you're getting insufficient sleep, it is extremely catabolic. You will start losing muscle mass and losing strength from a lack of sleep. So it's necessary that we get adequate amounts of sleep. How much that is is somewhat debated. Uh, usually, generally, I say somewhere between like six to eight hours for most people. So let's just say seven hours of consistent solid sleep would be good for most people. The other thing is great habits around that, you know, making sure you're hydrated, making sure you're well fed to eat for recovery. You can increase strength in a slight caloric deficit. You probably won't increase muscle mass unless you're an absolute beginner in a, in a caloric deficit. So those are your priorities right now. That's like your pyramid is like, train appropriately, don't overtrain. Sleep appropriately, don't necessarily undersleep. And eat appropriately, don't undereat. And don't underhydrate nutrition. Some of the passive modalities, like massage, foam rolling, uh, salt baths, soaking, those things help more from a psychological aspect than a physiological aspect. When you feel good, you tend to perform well. There isn't a lot of evidence showing that massages or salt baths or cryo chambers actually help improve strength or muscle size and so forth. That data just isn't there. It doesn't mean they doesn't because obviously they, they test them in an acute phase and you don't know long term. Uh, we know cortisol at too high a level, which is your body's stress hormone, can be very catabolic. And if your cortisol is constantly elevated, it could be causing catabolism. But if you did some type of recovery method every day, like let's say you took a sodium bath, uh, um, Epsom salt bath, every day and you lowered your cortisol level, that might allow for a more anabolic response. It's a little bit of a gray area because usually they're tested in an acute phase, not in a long-term phase. So if you have a habit of say, a nap, a 30-minute nap might boost growth hormone a little bit, might help recovery, might lower cortisol, that over the long-term might lead to more anabolism or muscle size or strength. In the short term, it doesn't show it in the immediate effect. So it's really hard to study and understand those things. You have to look at the 
the gray area of it sometimes. You know, if it's, if it's just helping you have a better mindset or a better mood, do it. Whether science says it's great or not. If it makes you feel good, do it. Uh, realistically, consistency is the best thing for your muscle recovery. Like consistency with your sleep, consistency with your eating, um, consistency with your training. If you are someone who, you know, on Monday you hit your calorie intake perfectly and you hit your sleep perfectly, but on Wednesday you've only hit 50% of your calories and you only slept three hours, and then Thursday you do that again, and then Friday you are perfect on your sleep and your food, who cares? You, like you've only, you've only accomplished 50% consistency at that point. So being consistent with sleeping the same amount, being consistent with eating the same amount of calories, whether that's in a surplus or deficit or maintenance, whatever it is, like as long as you're consistently doing the things that you're supposed to be doing every single day, you will recover a little bit better. Yeah. We are the sum of our habits. So start trying to implement and create and ingrain good habits. Like she said, consistency. By the way, what you just heard me open was the Zero Sugar Orange Crush, and it is fantastic. That's you're really welcome. really good. <laughs> I think that there was a question that was... Joey had asked about flexibility. So we're going to change the terminology here a little bit. Would you recommend being more flexible in general or specific to the big three? Trying to improve upper back flexibility for the new sumo. I like to look at it differently than, yeah, I like to look at it differently than, than flexibility or mobility. What is your ability? What is your ability to get into positions you need to use on either a daily basis or list specific? And it's not a matter of being super flexible. Do you need to be able to do splits to do sumo deadlifts? No. So achieving a split is, is taking some energy and time away from your main goal, which is to improve your sumo deadlift, just to get to be more flexible and be able to do a split. You only need to be able to get into the positions necessary for those three lifts. So do you need to be a yogi? No. Does it help to be a little bit more flexible in certain areas? Absolutely. It helps to have great ankle mobility. It helps to have great shoulder mobility. And it helps to have great thoracic mobility. Those three will clear up so many problems. Mm -hmm. But you don't need to be like extremely long-range contortionist mobile. That actually hampers your stability because you desensitize the muscle spindles, which is how we use the stretch reflex. Someone who's too mobile in the shoulders, too mobile in the ankles, or too mobile in the thoracic spine is going to have a hard time staying stable because they've desensitized their ability to create tension by overdoing the stretching and so forth. So there's a limit to what's too much and a limit to what's too little. The limit does exist. Look at that. <laughs> but you just have to think, am I in the most ideal position? Do I have the ability to get there? No. Then that's what you focus on and work on because that's going to take the parking brake off. Also, there is flexibility is generally passive. Mobility is, for the most part, more active. Right. So if you're flexible and you can do the splits, cool, that's passive. There's no weight on your back. Um, but when you have to be, for you, have thoracic mobility, because your thoracic mobility is poor, um, you are not able to uh, lift, basically lift your chest up and move your thoracic under load. You can probably do it a little bit better passively when there's no load on your back or no load in your hands or whatever, but being able to have better mobility comes from loaded active movements rather than flexibility. Like I can do the splits, but it doesn't help me for my sumo. Helps me though. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you, you have to look at it from that aspect. Like does it allow me to get my most ideal leverage? And that's where you want to look at how much mobility or how much you need, or sometimes it's even stability. Sometimes things lock up or get tight because you lack stability. So the better you get at bracing, the better you're probably going to get at thoracic ability. The better you get at bracing, the better hip mobility you're going to get. And that's, that's what happens. When the body feels unstable, it begins to tighten joint segments to create artificial stability. So you have to look at that. Somebody who has a lot of joint restrictions probably has really poor breathing and bracing patterns, whether they want to admit it or not. And that's what causes that restriction and mobility within that joint structure. Your torso, sometimes known as the trunk, is 
supposed to be the most stable part of your body. So if you don't know how to breathe and stabilize that, your body doesn't ever feel safe. So be a tree. What, yeah. A be a tree. Be a tree. Yeah. Be a brick. It has, it has branches and it has roots and that's what do everything else. That's what feeds it and moves it and breathes it. But the trunk, be a tree. That's why people can't hit depth. That's why people fold over. That's why people can't, you know, maintain position in their sumo is because their trunk is not supported or stable. It doesn't feel safe. So it collapses in on itself. So that way it can be quote unquote safe. All right. What else do we got? Uh, I think that was actually it from the Q&A, unless you want to answer some questions that we've already answered. I'm fine with that. Um, favorite movements or cues for those who have trouble with hips going up and chest falling down on a squat? If your hips are going up and your chest is falling down, it's for one of two reasons. The rooting of your foot, you're not on midfoot, so your chances are you're on your heels. And so when you're on your heels, your body is shifting back. So what is it doing to lift for stability? It shifts the hips back behind it even more to create a balanced fulcrum with the bar or your chest is too tight, it's dropping down, pulling you forward, which is why your hips shoot back. So I would work on making more toe pressure so you have an even foot pressure so your body doesn't need to find that stability with the hips shooting back. And I would look at stretching the pecs and lats, which are the internal rotators of the shoulders, which may be pulling you forward. That's usually nine out of 10 times the two things that are causing someone to have hips shoot back and bar shoot forward is either poor rooting of the foot or poor mobility of the shoulders. Or your trunk is also not braced. That's again. it. <laughs> so. The body's always trying to find stability. So if you're not stable within the feet, within the trunk, and within the shoulders, it's gonna find stability somehow. And that's when you see that, that hip shoot back, good morning style squat. Yeah, it's not pretty. Um, just switched to low bar and having trouble finding the position. Tips, um, I answer this as more practice. Like if it's something new to you um, and you've never done low bar before, it's probably just gonna feel weird. Um, so training the low bar more consistently and giving it more time to feel more natural on your back is going to, uh, help you find the position. Um, I also said on my story when I answered this, that like, you don't have to lift high bar. You lift wherever feels more comfortable and whatever's the strong, or I'm sorry, you don't have to lift low bar. You can lift up whatever bar height feels most comfortable and strongest for you. Like Trevor and I both prefer like a mid bar. Mid bar. Um, low bar feels like trash and so does high bar, but mid bar feels great for me. So it's a uh, more about, uh, conditioning the position basically, like you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Yeah. You have to find your ideal position. You know, people will assume just cause they get the bar lower that they're somehow going to be stronger. And in some cases that bar being that low really folds them forward and causes them to use a lot more of their lower back than to use their legs. And it's not necessarily stronger. So there's individual differences you have to find your, your limb length, your bracing ability, your torso, your stance, all these things can vary exactly where your bar is best held. And that's something you just can get through trial and error and same thing with grip width and so forth. You know, not everyone's going to be able to have that Milenichev style, really low bar wrist bent back and not care about the pain and how much everything hurts and so forth. That's just kind of like a Russian toughness that he's able to do. It's not always ideal for everybody else. Uh, clearly it worked for him, but it's not going to work for everybody. So you have to be versatile and, and like Riley said earlier, adaptable to different positions. Mm -hmm. I don't know that that's a question. He just said wide stance squats. Are you bragging that wide you squat, squat wide or are you asking if it's acceptable? Wide squat stance? <laughs> <laughs> that's like uh, Anchorman, somebody put a question mark. <laughs> I'm Ron Burgundy, you know? It's like, I don't know, are you? Um, I'm going to answer this because I feel like I get asked this on every Q&A. How tall are you? <laughs> also, where'd you get those shoes? <laughs> oh. And do you love purple? Also, I don't mean, it's always like, what song is that in the background? I'm like, dude, I, I don't know. know. I'm just at a gym. I have no clue. Usually I have headphones in, so I have yeah. no idea. Or like if we're at a gym, I have headphones in, so I have no idea. Um, I am 5'8"-ish. Ish. I don't know. Um, 
according to the internet, I got a DM one time from someone that asked me if Trevor was a midget, and I'm like, yes, Trevor, I am. Trevor's taller than me. <laughs> like, I, I am a little person. It literally, it literally said, is your boyfriend a midget? And I'm That like, was the actual direct message. That's yeah. literally what it said, is your boyfriend a midget? And I, I mean, I didn't respond because I don't care. Um, but yeah, no, I'm like 5'8", Trevor's like 5'10", 5'11". 5'11 and a half, I was six foot, but I blew out some vertebrae and now I'm not anymore. And that really depresses me, I'm not gonna lie. Cause like six foot was like cool, 5'11 and a half is so not cool. Absolutely. Although now, I really enjoy the fact that that's a half inch left that I have to deadlift that bar. Yeah. So I'm really proud of that. So if I can like blow out maybe like one more vertebrae and it'd be like just 5'11 and no. lose an extra half, <laughs> no, 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 fucking no. awesome. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kyle's asking a question. I want to answer this because Kyle rarely asks questions, but he has good ones. Advice on testing sumo for a conventional puller, finding foot width, toes forward, outward, etc. See, he asks good questions. Um, just because you're experimenting with the lift doesn't mean you have to test the lift yet. Ideally, you don't want to test that lift. You want to keep building and finding your best possible position, like you kind of hinted at in the second part of the question. When someone's transitioning to sumo, I like to have them start from blocks and work their way down because it's a, it requires a lot less morbidity and it's a shorter range of motion, and they can start to develop that tension and learning how to create force with a wider stance because it is that's what throws everybody off. Sumo is a lot more leg-driven and thoracic extension than conventional. Conventional requires a lot more low back or erector strength and hamstring strength, and sumo is a lot more quad-driven and learning how to press the floor away and push apart. So I usually like to start from blocks. You'll play with your foot position. I generally tell people don't start really wide and don't start really flared. Start narrow. And as your tension increases, you can slowly work yourself out wider and wider and wider. Um, you know, a good example of this is Ed Cohn pulled 901 on a freaking stiff bar with a moderate to, to narrow stance. And Dan Grigsby, who is like 242, pulls almost a thousand, like 970 or 960, somewhere in that range, with an ultra wide feet flared stance. He probably didn't start there, he worked his way over time, but you can see that you can pull significantly whether it's narrow or wide. Um, uh, Angelo Fortino? Fortino, Fortino yeah. is that his name? He's like mm -hmm. four, four something, 14 something. Uh, he's a very narrow sumer puller with long extended arms and does a great job of using his quads to push off the floor. And I believe he has like the USAPL American record deadlift or maybe from the world record, I don't know, at like 744 at 183, which is pretty impressive. So don't, don't assume that you need to be wide and flared uh, unless you're in gear because that's what's going to help at the bottom. The hardest part for most people with sumo is breaking the floor. So if you go too wide and too flared and you don't have the hip stability yet, to create force, you're really gonna struggle there and you're gonna break down. So start narrow and kind of feet almost a little bit more straightish, maybe just turn where you squat from and work your way out from there from blocks and work your way down. I wouldn't test a lift until you feel proficient in the lift. Yeah. So work your way down from the blocks to the floor and when you feel like you have a really good starting position and static strength, then start working up towards testing that new lift. Just because you take a new lift doesn't mean there's any reason to test it and see where it's at. You're only gonna do yourself a disservice because you're gonna build bad patterns under heavy load. Build good patterns and positions first, position before power, and then start ingraining more and more power as you go. When someone's starting out with sumo, I, I do like what Trevor said was starting from blocks and like each each block of training, taking that block lower, like two inch, one inch to the floor. Um, I also prefer having someone do sumo singles at like inverted volume, so like 10 by one instead mm -hmm. of... Uh, Skill practice. Yeah, so they're just singles one right after another so then that way if they are trying to figure out their foot placing their hand placing their whatever their stance with you have 10 opportunities to kind of test it out and see which one feels better um versus if you're doing reps 
what people generally do with sumo is let it bounce and then none of the reps look the same and the bar's out here six inches in front of them the next one's close to them and the next one's still right. to the left like build they, a consistent them, pattern first yeah so i like the singles better when someone is starting because they're just you know keep it short rest periods and just have them walk up to the bar um try and set the consistent pattern or move it to us uh move their stance out in whatever flared not flared but it gives them lots of opportunities to try and bring that pattern yeah all right i think that's pretty good for this week we got several questions in there so thank you guys for joining us uh, thank you guys for sharing the podcast every time it comes out on Monday and it's downloaded. And for those of you who are joining us live on Instagram, asking questions, we really appreciate it. Thank you guys for supporting Culture Nutri. And hopefully some of you guys who don't have program ideas want to try the Cultivating Strength program that is available on Train Heroic. Uh, we'll be linking to it all week in our stories in the first week's free. So appreciate you guys for joining us. Thank you very much. Goodbye.